As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to George Eaton and Anusha Kalian about a bad week for Labour and how many of Jeremy Corbyn's gaffes ever reached the ears of voters. Then Barbara Speed and John Elledge join me to talk about how cities can save the world. It has been uh, another bad week for Labour, I think it's fair to say. I'm joined by a political editor, George Eaton, and Anoush Shikalian, deputy web editor, to talk a little bit about some of the gaffes um, that we've had this week and whether or not they, they really matter, I think. George, I'm going to start with you first, because you've been following, in your column this week, you've, you've written a little bit about it. Just is this okay? So I think the the big question that everyone always says is it's all just you in the evil mainstream media picking on every little thing that he does, trying to bring him down. Is that is there any truth in that criticism? There's certainly some truth in it. In fact, there's there's quite a, a lot of truth in it. And um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn does face a media that um, believes he will fail and and is determined to ensure that he does. Uh, the other problem for him is that um, he's so divided uh, from his MPs, particularly mm-hmm. on issues of foreign and, and defence policies. So Corbyn allies rightly point out that on domestic policy, Labour's actually more united than it's it's given credit for. There are quite a lot of MPs who are who are pleased that they're now officially an, an anti-austerity party. But on foreign and security policy, um, when Jeremy Corbyn said he wouldn't press the nuclear button. He'd like to. He obviously wants to scrap uh, Trident. Um, he said he couldn't uh, see any circumstances in which he'd support the use of, of armed force. He's um, uh, obviously he made his, his comments, his initial comments on and shoot to kill, which stunned a lot of his MPs. There is a chasm between himself and, and his party, and I think the the problem for for him as Labour leader is that the more salient these issues become in British politics, the more difficult it will be for him to maintain unity. Yes, it's an unfortunate time, isn't it, I guess, that actually if this had been 20, you know, been, if we'd been talking immediately after the financial crisis, it would have been much more important what Labour had to say about that. But at the moment, I'm going to run through, okay, I'm going to run through Ken Livingstone Gate <laughs> and, and tell me if I get the sequence of events wrong, because this is how I experienced what happened uh, on Wednesday. So... Ken Livingston, right, okay, so George, first of all, actually, it's all your fault, right? So you <laughs> you tweet that 
Ken Livingston at a book launch? Or yes, it was at a, a re, the relaunch, in fact, of the Left Book Club. Right. <laughs> Which is how you spend your, your nights. It's fine. I'm not judging. Oh, I wasn't uh, there. I, was, okay. I, I had a, a source there. So. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> okay, I'm definitely not judging. <laughs> that he is now co-convener of Labour's Defence Review, alongside Maria Eagle, the Shadow Defence Secretary in the Cabinet, and Kevin Jones, who's also a Shadow Defence Minister. Maria Eagle, not to put a fine point on this, doesn't know until she reads on Twitter that she has got a co-convener. And this is a problem because she is very pro-Trident. Ken is very anti-Trident, right? So so that is a small... Somewhere in Eagle Land, a small you know, um, uh, fit is being had. Reasonably, you might say. When does Ken then decide he's going to make it better by attacking Kevin Jones's mental health? Mm. So that was after Kevin Jones had said that Ken Livingston had no experience of defence, that this appointment would damage Labour's Labour's credibility and um and then Ken decided to to respond by saying you know I think he needs psychiatric help maybe he needs to pop off to the to the GP and um and that caused outrage not just because of the uh comments themselves but also because um Kevin Jones is someone who suffered from depression and 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 was one of the first MPs to speak publicly about about mental health problems and of course Jeremy Corbyn has made a more sensitive and um positive approach to mental health one of the features of his of his leadership so it, it caused outrage and um Ken initially refused to to apologize and said that basically Kevin Jones should should get over it and and, and stop whinging he then after speaking to Jeremy Corbyn on the phone, issued a, an unambiguous apology. Uh, it was it was tweeted out and said all uh, other statements are are, are withdrawn, are, um, are are irrelevant now. This is this is a sort of un- unequivocal apology. So at that point, he could have bailed out, right? Yeah. At that point, he, that everyone could have had their said their piece, and and then he goes on Channel Four News. Um, yes, and I. Uh, yeah, and then and then basically does not only repeats well. So at some point previously in the day, he'd said that because of, he was from a boy from South London. Yeah, this was the kind of thing so, I'd say. And then he then gives this mad interview from outside his. Oh, sorry, I know I shouldn't say mad now. Um, <laughs> interview, sort of b- bizarre interview from outside his his gate, where he refers repeatedly to Kevin Jones as Jeremy. Um, which is not great, and then has basically sort of another on-air bust-up with him. And also where it goes, I didn't watch Newsnight, but I, I understand made time for Newsnight as well, to basically say, yeah, but he had a go at me first. That's kind of slightly undermining. But my, Anoush, my question to you is, is that a gaff, or is that something that's a very small pinprick that has been blown out of proportion by people who want to attack Corbyn? Gaff or goff? Oh, well, it depends on who we're talking about, because... Ken Livingston, it's a massive gaffe that he didn't manage to dig himself out of pretty much all day that that it was running on for. Um, but I think it's probably um, also a gaffe for Jeremy Corbyn as well, because he he appointed Ken Livingston to sort of run this review, knowing that he had an opinion that clashed with the shadow defence minister, shadow defence secretary that he'd appointed. And so it's almost like he's putting some sort of a spy in in his own camp for his own point of view because he's anti-nuclear as well and also as George pointed out Labour didn't announce this and apparently Maria Eagle and Kevin Jones weren't aware of this appointment until it was you know posted on Twitter not and not told to them by the leader's office and so that's a gaffe as well I think. It must be particularly um, George it must be particularly galling in some ways for the people in the party because 
Ken is sort of, I don't know, I think a clique sounds too disparaging and then there's nothing wrong with having kind of supporters and allies and a network around you, but Ken's old chief of staff is now Corbyn's chief of staff, right? So there will be a feeling among, you know, not people who are less Corbyn sympathetic that that this is a kind of, this is another one of getting your, you know, somebody on who's on board with you into a, into a decent job, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, it's odd that we're surprised by that because Jeremy Corbyn's the leader. He won, um, as he as he often points out, a huge mandate, um, 60% of the vote. And leaders tend to like to appoint people who uh, they, they know well and who they They're can trust and who him. are loyal to them. And Tony, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown certainly did that. The problem is that, as I said before, is, the, is this fundamental schism between uh, the leader and his, and his MPs, um, fewer than 20 of whom voted for him. And there was a view among MPs that what he should have done was try to build more bridges, that he should have point, appointed, made less uh, controversial and, and, and divisive appointments. And, and he hasn't, hasn't done that. Um, but he's also got a problem, hasn't he? That I mean, so Diana Abbott is complaining from the other side that there aren't enough Corbyn backers in the shadow cabinet. That he feels very isolated because mm. he specifically did try and reach out, you know, to Andy Burnham, yeah. to the Eagles. You know, yeah, we thought that was a good move at first because he was trying to create this so-called broad church. But now he's doing things like trying to undermine his own appoint appointees, um, which can never work because they've been given almost permission from him to to sort of pursue um, their own. Uh, policy briefs and then he tries to undermine them by making Ken Livingston dictate defence policy for example I think PMQs is becoming a, a sort of interesting forum for this because um, yesterday it was it was as you'd expect in the wake of a, of a tragedy it was not as you know it's not I think everybody acknowledges that that, that is a very poor look to indulge in sort of kind of slightly petty partisan point scoring nonetheless there were some petty partisan point score for example on the shoot to kill policy but I mean I mean, so George, closing question. This is to some extent all froth, right? You and I know about it, and Nush knows about it. People in the New Statesman office know about it. How many of even of uh, you know the sort of wider membership or the three pound supporters, let alone people who who only engage with politics at all? How much of this stuff does actually hurt Corbyn? Uh, not much of it, no. And and I think that's um, an incredibly important point point to remember, and that. Um, as bad as as things are judged to be for for Jeremy Corbyn at Westminster, I think it's it's very unlikely that any of this will have changed the the members' opinions of him. I think um, for them, they'll have seen um, Jeremy Corbyn win a, a big victory over tax credits. Um, they'll have seen him make Labour an anti-austerity party, and they'll have seen him you know express solidarity with the French after the Paris attacks. Express um reservations and even even hostility to an aggressive military response one of the dangers of, of overreaction and they will agree with um almost all of that um unlike most of his MPs and so it's this it, it's two different worlds really. and 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 they have completely different different views of uh, of of Corbyn so you're absolutely, you're absolutely right on that. And what will be most telling is the Oldham by-election, which is coming up in two weeks' time, where um, UKIP have gained some ground. It will be interesting to see how um, how many voters they win over, because they're almost trying to exploit Jeremy Corbyn's um, weakness on on defence or soft defence stance. And they were what? They were like fifth in the seat in twenty. 20- mm. 10, George, they, they've come... Yes, so, yes, they finished second there in, 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 in 2015. And Anusha's absolutely right to raise the issue of ele- of election results because that's the one thing that Corbyn's most um, hostile enemies cling to is that if Labour start 
doing badly in, in by-elections start doing badly in local elections. You can't argue with those facts. You can't pretend that it's all okay. The problem is that um, the, the those members who, who voted for Corbyn and, and support him may well blame the MPs for being insufficiently supportive of him. So even if Labour start performing badly in elections... There's no, there's no reason to assume that that will, uh, that will damage Jeremy Corbyn. The other thing is, it's not like there are elections which Labour should absolutely walk. I mean, yes. Oldham by-election is one example. You know, that was a very big majority for Labour. That would be catastrophic if mm. that one went. But realistically, everyone is expecting Labour to get slaughtered in Scotland. I mean, just to maybe even lose all of its, um, you know, uh, list. You know, it will only get topped up by the list system. Not, you know, not have any constituency MSPs at all. The London mayoral race, seeming, you know, people think that Zach Goldsmith as the Tory contender has a very good chance. If if Sadiq Khan loses to him, I think that people will think that's a fair result. That's not one that you know it should have absolutely been in in the bag. It's not as clear cut as that. Uh, I guess some of the Wales and some of the local elections are a slightly different case. But even then, you know, Plaid Cymru have been slowly building support. Um, so there's, there's not likely to be George a real absolute crunch point, is there? That everybody will that everyone's kind of fixated on as being the great Jeremy Corbyn test. I think that's right, which I think is why a lot of MPs who are now saying we don't think this this can go on um, also say at the same time we don't see how it how it can end. Uh, they simultaneously <laughs> find it hard to imagine Jeremy Corbyn still being leader in, in 2020, but also once they run through uh, all of the scenarios, actually seeing how he could, um, which is why I think the aim of some is simply to try and wear him down. They think he'll be. 71 in, in, in 2020, he may well be exhausted by the internal warfare mm. um, that is, has now become a, a weekly uh, occurrence in Labour. And he will want to stand aside. Um, but um, he certainly doesn't seem like someone who wants to, to ever stand aside at the moment and, and is very much someone who wants to, to use his position to change the party. And there will be lots of people around him, the same people who urged him to stand in the first place, who were saying, no, Jeremy, you can't, you can't mm. walk away um, because uh, the Blairites want their party back and you've got to stop them getting it back. Well, on that um, yeah, combative note, thank you very much, George and Anoush. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Can cities save the world? Yes, for once, we're going to let city metric editor John Ellidge talk about something that isn't monarchs. And he's joining us with Barbara Speed, who also works for City Metric. So, John, you wrote a piece this week in which the, it follows the thesis about mayors, I guess, and it sort of expands that, about the idea that national politics is kind of stale. It's very hard to get things through. Nations kind of assume that they're competing with one another for territories, but cities have to be kind of flexible. And I think you're... I think, maybe the thing that brings this most home to people is the fact that Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson are nobody's idea of like ideological soulmates. But the way that they ran London, the schemes that they've run have been relatively similar. So do you want to start to, okay, so just tell us uh, in the case of London, because we are the hated London media elite, 
how that works. I think you've kind of stolen my thunder there. That's my entire thesis gone in the introduction, so we might as well just pack up and go home, really. Um, It's International Men's Day as well. I'm constantly being undermined like this. Um, It's The the theory I I wrote about, it comes from a guy called Ben Barber, who's an American academic. Um, And it's not so much a cities are brilliant theory. It's more a nations are terrible, terrible, incompetent places theory. Um, the problem dates back, as so many things do, to the Peace of Westphalia of 1648. Uh, I have to say that's my second favourite treaty after Sykes-Picot, which is one of those things that you can just drop into conversation to make yourself sound more intelligent. Like, well, of course, this all goes back to Sykes-Picot. You can also go, well, of course, this all goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia. At, at risk of totally derailing this already fairly derailed conversation, would you like to tell me what Sykes-Picot is? Because I have no idea. It's the agreement that carved up the Middle East in 19... I'm going to say 20s? But it's where it's it's where the border dispute. Anyway, but the, we'll, we'll talk about that. Where time. is Westphalia? Okay, that's my next question. Uh, Western Germany, I believe. Um, is but there the, an Eastphalia? I, I don't know. Let's if if we sort out the travel budget, I'll go Phalia hunting. <laughs> okay, I'll go Phalia bagging. Um, but yeah, the, the Peace of Westphalia ends the Thirty Years' War, and a key part of that is the idea of territorial integrity and the idea that you know. You can do what you like within your own nation and no other nation can kind of come in. And yeah, this is always the more in the breach and the observance because obviously, you know, other nations have armies. But in principle, you get this idea of national sovereignty that's not really existed before in the sort of feudal world or the world of empires. Suddenly you have the idea of nation states. Fast forward 350 years and you get to the point where everything is seen through this prism of national sovereignty. So you look at trying to deal with anything on a European level. Um, it, at any point, if if a British politician talks about sort of sharing sovereignty with our, our neighbours and European allies, their political enemies will accuse them of selling us down the river. Um, because we have this idea that national sovereignty is a zero-sum game. You know, If you share it, if you give it away to another authority, you are inherently losing something. But that is true in the sense of something like... So look at something like corporation tax rates, for example. You know, uh, Ireland set theirs deliberately lower than Britain in order to try and kind of seduce business away. There's been a long discussion about what an independent Scotland would do, actually even what a devolved Scotland would do. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of which... I mean, But this is kind of the point, really, is that nations do act in a sort of zero-sum way as if they're, they're, they're competitive rather than cooperative. And it kind of goes... It, it's not the nations never cooperate, but it kind of goes against the grain. Barber's thesis is that cities don't do this because they're used to not having sovereignty because they've got these sort of nations sat above them. Mm. And also because, unlike national governments, they kind of have to make sure the bins are getting empties. But also that... I mean, nations kind of rest their whole identity on the fact that they're all different from one another, whereas cities actually don't tend to do that. They kind of recognise that they operate in a roughly similar way. And in a globalised world, that makes a lot more sense as an outlook than thinking but also, we're Britain yeah, and that you we have operate a in a British way. border that there's only yeah. so much you can do. So you can do things that only apply to London, but people will move in and out of London and you kind yeah. of can't really do anything about that. But that said, I mean, Barbara, you must have written about stuff. I'm thinking, of, like, isn't, for example, Utrecht is going to try out a universal basic income. There are just things that you can... It, okay, John's going to look at me because I'm going to say basically... You have a lot more sort of executive power. Almost, you know, there are, I think we could all point to mayors who have slightly dictatorial tendencies, which you can kind of get away with as a mayor. Yeah, you can just kind of go, I'm going to want to do this. Everyone do this. It's a thing now. And it's kind of because they're within a relatively limited scope. That's not nearly as dangerous as a dictatorial leader would be mm. on a national scale. But I mean, yeah, if you get these figures like 
Boris Johnson, Bill de Blasio, their huge personalities can actually go somewhere. They can actually get stuff done. And as much as Boris has created all kinds of white elephant schemes that were maybe not the best it could have been, he has done a lot of things, which I'm not sure is... It's not personal to him. I'm not sure he would have done as prime minister, for example. But yeah, if you tried to get Boris bikes throughout the entire country, for example, yeah, would never that would have been a total yeah. nightmare and I'm sure could never have happened. I think there's also an extent to which the social compact is easy to maintain at a sort of city level because, you know, it's it's very easy to kind of make a case that the people who live four streets away, you have an interest in their kind of safety and security. That's much harder when you get up to sort of nation state level and you get sort of people competing over whether or not they're... they're they're, they're part of a shared identity or whether they, they need to take responsibility for each other. Well, I've definitely felt that when we had Sadiq Khan and Tessa Jal come to talk to us because the stuff that they were talking about, I was like, well, actually, yes, on a, absolutely on a day-to-day level, you know, stuff like having a one-hour travel pass, so, like, you, you can use as many buses as you want during an hour. Just on a, you know, I would that, you know, sometimes my bus breaks, I have to change a bus. That would I would notice that. Or, like, some of the housing policy stuff that they would do, we would just see immediately. You, you can press buttons in cities and make people's lives visibly better quite quickly um, and you know you mentioned that you know Boris and Ken did kind of coalesce around certain policies we're already seeing that to some extent with the 2016 race I think where like even before the candidates were chosen we were seeing um, from, from both Labour and Tory candidates proposals to sort of build on Transport for London land as housing a lot of the ideas were coming up from sort of candidates from different parties um, as, as another American academic guy called Ed Glazer is fond of saying, there's no left or right wing way to empty a trash can. You just kind of have to do it. Yeah, and because you can, I mean, because if you think about these these buttons you can press, the slight changes you can make in a city, on a national scale, that would always be done as a pilot scheme, which people are often unwilling to invest in. So if you think about the NHS, the kinds of changes you can make on the NHS are incredibly slow. You can't automate, you can't bring in smart or technological solutions very easily. You have to do it as a pilot scheme, you have to prove it's scalable. In a city, you can bring in that kind of stuff on a much smaller, more compact scale, and it's much more likely to work because you have everybody in the same place and you can explain to them how to use a it, new yeah. card machine. Or it, also may, it also means that we are kind of finally coming to terms with the idea of directly elected mayors after having had, you know, lots of places being offered one, fifty places not wanting one. Now that there are several that you can point to who are quite effective. So Newham, for example, has Robin Wales, who's a big personality, um, Richard Lease in Manchester, for example, you know, obviously London is a very big example, but there, Bristol has a, an independent sitting uh, as a mayor, um, you know, who's also a pretty big personality. I've met him. He turned up with on a sort of on a bicycle, red trousers, with red trousers on, exactly. You know, they are kind of they are figureheads, but also they are, and you know, it's, it sounds unkind to describe them as dictators, but they are people who have, you know, who can push through stuff very, very strongly. And we're gonna we're gonna see more of that because George Osborne has made it very clear that cities and city regions that want elements of devolution in the way London and Manchester have are going to have to agree to have mayors as well and and so like in the last few weeks we're finally seeing these deals starting to come through including from city regions like uh, Merseyside and the West Midlands that I don't think anyone was seriously expecting would get in on the first ground, round because they you get like Birmingham and Solihull hating each other and so on uh, but actually it looks like they're going to happen and it looks like they're going to have mayors too so well, there we go. Well, that is why cities are, uh, are going to save the world. Thank you very much, John and Barbara. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. 
You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.